Chris Isaac. Wicked game. You know, I think my start with this song, it's probably the same as just about everybody else from my generation, because when I hear this song, the first thing I think of is Dylan and Brenda. And the reason for that is because obviously this song featured really heavily in an episode of Beverly Hills 90210, a scene where, as I recall, Dylan and Brenda broke up. And there was <clears throat> there was some story shit that was going on with that. And it's not like it just kind of came out of nowhere because of the fact that this is serialized television. <clears throat> because of the fact that this was serialized television, things like that get built up to, you know? And keep in mind, I mean, guys, when I saw that episode of Beverly Hills 90210, I was about 10 years old. And I kind of, I mean, it's like, it's like anything in life, I suppose. It's when you don't really know what to expect in life, as most children don't, then what you tend to do is just kind of try to be ready for anything, you know? And so I thought, holy shit, is this like, is this what high school is like? Because, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it's on TV, and I learned long ago that the shit that happens on TV generally bears absolutely positively no resemblance to real life whatsoever in one sense but in another sense it's like there was so much uh, about Beverly Hills 90210 that kind of sort of half-assed tried to be I shouldn't say realistic but somewhat grounded in some kind of some kind of reality and so, you know, I just kind of sat there wondering, you know, wow, is this like what high school is going to be like, you know, instead of just doing homework, you're having it out with friends all the time or you're breaking up with girlfriends or, you know, it's like that sounds kind of fucked up. I don't really know if I want any part of that. And then, of course, high school comes around and yes, it is indeed horrifying, but not necessarily for those reasons. And so much of Wicked Game is just kind of, I guess it's like, I don't want to say nostalgia, but it's like it just kind of takes me back to being a stupid 10-year-old who didn't really have all that good a bullshit filter and really didn't know what to make of life because of the fact that 90210 is kind of a confusing show for a child to watch if that child's intention is to understand the world around them. On the other hand, if that seems kind of naive, I ask all of you to remember that the alternative was watching the news, which is somehow more depressing than anything that's on Beverly Hills 90210, but I'm rambling now. I guess another kind of big memory that I've got associated with Wicked Game came when I was 24, and this was, um, let me think, it was probably like November or December of 2004, and I was just sitting around this kind of miserable dump of a townhouse. I, For those of you who want to for whatever reason you want to hear me talk more about this miserable dump of a townhouse in which I lived in the fall of 2004, well, you can listen to part one of my dreaded Smallville season four retrospective, and there I talk about it a fair bit. But in brief, this was basically the first time that I'd had a place of my own. You know, no family, no roommates, I just lived by myself, and... To kind of tie it back with the 90210 thing, i just broken up with somebody, and it was somebody that I, I, I kind of liked. Now, I think a lot of people, when they're in their 20s, they have that one breakup that, for better or for worse, just kind of defines them, you know, like they're, I, well, I don't want to say defines them, like, as people, but it's like, it, it's a very defining moment, you know, like this is the moment when, I don't know, like, I guess the pain is now real. It's not like this high school shit where, you know, you break up with somebody and you're kind of upset about it for a couple of days and then, hey, you know, you start up with somebody new and you forget the other person, wash, rinse, repeat. This wasn't, you know, this isn't, that's not the kind of breakup that I'm talking about. You know, that, I, I mean here that, that breakup where it hurts. It really hurts, and you carry that with you for a long time, right? Well, in the fall of 
no, uh, the fall of uh, 2004, like November and de December and through there, that was not the breakup that I was wrestling with. I'd had that breakup years before. I'd kind of gotten it out of my system relatively early on, in fact, in my 20s. And I, I was sort of in a kind of like a liberated position, you know, because then, and I think somewhat now, you know, my opinion was, I've been through the worst, you know, there's nothing, there's literally nothing that anybody can throw at me that's going to hurt worse or last longer or be just more taxing on me personally than that huge breakup I had when I was 21, you know, or 20, actually. And so, you know, yeah, I, I ended up breaking up with somebody in November of 2004. And, you know, yeah, it, it kind of bothered me a little bit, but ultimately it wasn't that big a deal. You know, yeah, you know, I mean, let's face it, you'd kind of grown very accustomed to having this person in your life, and I really liked her, and uh, I was even kind of starting to see a little bit of a future with her, and then gone, you know? And... On the one hand, yeah, like I say, that, I mean, it, it kind of sucks, you know? No two ways about that. It, it, it kind of sucks. But I just kind of realized, you know, whatever. I'm going to bounce back from this. Everything's going to be okay. And that was, that was just sort of the baggage that I brought to it, you know? When I had this, that, the aforementioned sort of epic mega breakup back when I was 20... You know, I mean, it sounds melodramatic to say it now, but especially, you know, being as I was 20 at the time, but I, I kind of found myself wondering, I was like, okay, shit, is this it? I mean, is there, is there going to be life after this girl is gone? And if there is, what's it going to be like, you know? What's in store for me? And, I, and you know... All of these certainties, this future that I've been kind of planning on, it just went away, you know? And the shock of losing it, you know, like losing that was almost as, uh, as big a deal as losing her, you know, this girl that I broke up with when I was 20, right? And in short order, you know, this all happened in this breakup, it happened in the spring of 2001. And so I had that entire summer to just sit around and be miserable about it. But then, you know, the fall of 2001 comes around and things start getting back to normal, except for the, you know, terrorist thing. You know, uh, things basically start getting back to normal and I'm going on dates, I'm meeting new people. And, you know, what I realized is, yeah, you know, she's gone. And what I realized at that moment was probably forever. But I'm going to be okay, you know? I still don't know what the future's going to bring for me, but everything's going to be okay. And I guess the realization of that was something that just kind of stuck with me all those years, you know, that the fact that this is not the end of the line, that life does go on, I'm going to go on, and everything, all, when all said and done, to get a little bit Blue Lantern here, when all said and done, all will be well. And that was kind of the mentality I had in the fall of 2004 when this other girl and I uh, broke up. And it's like I say, I mean, you know, yeah, it's not pleasant. I mean, you're not happy that this happened in one sense. But, um, you know, on the other hand, well, probably it's all for the best in the end anyway for personal stuff that we don't need to go into here. But suffice it to say, you know, when I really started thinking about it, and I guess just considering, you know, what I'd lost, but as much as anything, maybe what I'd gained, what I came to, came to realize is this isn't a completely bad thing. But having said all of that, it's not like I was, you know, walking on sunshine. Oh, you know, it's not like I was doing that either. I was just kind of mopey there for, you know, a couple of months. And what I did was, and I'm not sure if, because of the fact that I'm just recording this in silence, I'm actually pretty sure that Wicked Game has actually stopped by now, so what I may do is just end up looping it. But what I decided to do was, you know, 
was just, I guess, just kind of wallow in my mopey mopiness. And I listened to a, to a lot of, you know, sad bastard type of music and all of that. And one of the songs that came up in the rotation in my uh, playlist was Chris Isaac's Wicked Game. You know, and I thought, <laughs> how perfect is this? You know, like, for me, one of the breakup songs of all time. And now here it is. And then when I really started listening to it, I was like, you know, there's something that's just wrong with this song, you know? And it took me a second to really, I guess, pinpoint it. But there came a point when I realized, you know, the problem with this song is that it's played way too fast. I mean, this is supposed to be kind of a emo McMopey type of song. And this is not really the tempo you want for that. So what I did was I just slowed the song down a step or two. And to me, it just sounded a lot darker and sadder whenever you, you play it slow like that, right? And so, honestly, when I think of Chris Isaac's Wicked Game as a song, in my mind, the way it's played is probably about somewhere between 5 and 10% slower than it's actually supposed to be played, just because I think it sounds better that way, you know? So, anyway, there you go. Hello, and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I'm doing right now is launching part three of a mega series that's dedicated to January of 1991. And you might ask yourself, Magnus, Magnus, what's so special about January of 1991? Well, I'll tell you. Basically, in general, a lot of people look down their nose at the 1990s as a decade when it comes to comics and God knows what other things. And in particular, it's, it's like 1991, 1993, 1997, they kind of get a bad rap among a lot of comics fans. It's like, man, that was just a clunker year for comics. And you know what? There may even be something to that. You know, I don't, I, I honestly, I don't think I agree that 1993 was a clunker year, like overall. But I kind of see where people are coming from. But having said all of that, if you ask me, every single year of the 90s had some kind of redeeming value to it. You know, usually a significant redeeming value to it. And in particular, I always thought that 1991 was a year that just got picked on way too much. And so what I wanted to do was basically just have a mega series where I talk about a couple of comics from 1991. And I thought it might be kind of fun if I restrict my coverage, for want of a better way to phrase it, if I just kind of narrow my focus and, and limit it just to January of 1991. And I thought, well, you know, that might actually be kind of fun, you know, just to, and it also kind of offered me a chance to sort of diversify with my content because guys, I'm not going to bullshit any of you. When you really look back at the subject matter that I've dealt with on Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, like as a show, you know, there have been times when I've kind of gone off the beaten path a few times, but let's face it, the reality is I spend the majority of my time talking about comics, and then of those comics, I probably spend the majority of that time talking about comics that are a little bit more inside of my wheelhouse, you know? There are certain comics that I just love and cherish, and it's kind of funny that I can plan a schedule on... You know, just in terms of, like, the things that I want to talk about. You know, I can I, I can sit around and plot and plan and schedule and devise and do all of this other stuff. But it's like, in the crucial moment, I'm going to talk about the stuff that's, I don't like, it's safe for me to talk about, I guess. It's like, this is the stuff that I'm most familiar with. Or these are the things that I cherish the most. Or these are the comics that have meant the most to me over the years, or just whatever. And so I thought this could be kind of a neat little opportunity to just kind of diversify things a little bit. Because, you know, if records be checked, I think one of the things that probably we can all agree on is that I haven't really talked about Marvel comics as much as I might have. So maybe if I do a mega series, it's all about January of 1991. 
maybe I can throw a couple Marvel books in there. So, anyway. To get into today's episode, though, I will not be talking about a Marvel comic book today. No, no. I'm going to be talking about something that's actually been on my mind. People, I kid you not, for over 25 years now. The just kind of oddity that is the pre-Mark Wade Wally West Flash. You know? Everybody I know seems to love Mark Wade's work on the Flash. And it's I mean, on the one hand, I mean it's it's kind of obvious to say, well, there was a, a character called Wally West before Mark Wade came along, but was there? I don't know. I mean, well, whatever. So this just seemed like it was going to be a good opportunity to talk about that, but also it'll be a good opportunity to talk about some other stuff. So I'll come back to that later, though. For right now, though, I'm going to be talking about Flash number 46. Cover date is January 1991. On sale date is November the 13th of 1990. Cover price is one dollar. Huh, weren't those the days? Writer is Bill Mesner Lobes. Penciler is Greg LaRock. Inker is Jose Marzen. Letterer is Tim Harkins. Colorist is Glenn Whitmore. Editor is Brian Augustine. And title is Day of the Beast. Story synopsis is as follows. The issue kicks off with Vixen attempting to calm down a jackal by feeding him maternal scent. This does indeed manage to calm the jackal down, but Detective Cleveland, who's watching this whole thing, has no idea what to make of all this. All of a sudden, a pack of dogs and cats, plus Gorilla Grodd, attack Vixen. He pretty well smacks the shit out of her while he's dragging a battered and bruised Flash around by the hair. Vixen replicates Grodd's scent and gains his strength, but she loses control over herself and almost kills him by slamming him through a wall. Grodd decides, you know what, now would be a pretty good time to get the hell out of here, so he retreats to his makeshift laboratory. Meanwhile, the good guys take the injured Flash to a safe house in order for him to heal. There they concoct a plan to try and defeat Grodd. Realizing that he's going to need help, Wally calls Pied Piper. Meanwhile, Grodd completes his giant Kirby machine of doom to gain control over all the animals in Keystone City, and then he instructs them to attack the public. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Vixen uses Grodd's scent to find out where he's hiding and then sets out after him. Flash and Piper follow after her, only to have Vixen lose control over herself again and attack them. Flash puts up a fight and tries to take Vixen down, but she's just too powerful for him and manages to knock his ass out. Grodd appears at that moment and announces that Vixen was only doing his bidding as his Kirby machine of doom gives him some level of control over her too. Later, Grodd imprisons Flash and Piper and locks them up like animals. Flash tries to tell Grodd that the police and the Justice League will both be looking for him now that he's gone missing, but Grodd just doesn't have a single fuck to give about that. Meanwhile, the animals Grodd has been controlling have gained a brain capacity roughly equal to Grodd's own, and they've started feeling, you know what, I think we're entitled to some of Grodd's power and authority too, since let's face it, we're the ones who won all the battles here, while really all Grodd did was just sit on his gorilla butt watching the action from the sidelines. At this point, shit gets really real when Rex the Wonder Dog shows up, introduces himself to one of Grodd's dogs, and announces that he's there to help. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, guys, I brought this issue brand new off the racks, brought it home, read it, and I think it would be safe to say that when I finished this comic, when I got to the last page and read it, and that was the end of the comic, I closed the comic, sat there thinking quietly to myself, and then, guys, I'm not kidding, I said out loud, what the fuck was that? Guys, it needs to be said that I walked into this comic knowing jack nothing. 
about Wally West, and really nothing about The Flash. The reason I picked this issue up, and it's kind of alluded to on the cover of this thing, the reason I picked this comic up in the first place was because I'd started watching The Flash TV show starring John Wesley Shipp, and I kind of liked it. You know, I kind of liked that it was this kind of science fairy tale type of stylized reality, you know, kind of this Batman Forever type of uh, tone before there really was a Batman Forever, and or even a Batman Returns for that matter. And I kind of liked it, you know? I mean, I liked that show. I liked that, like, just that style that the show used. And I liked all of that. So I headed out and um, decided, you know what? Next time I see a Flash comic on the shelf, I'm picking it up. And one night, I got my chance. The family... We all piled into my mom's Suburban, and my parents drove us up to the mall, and we did what we would customarily do. Everybody just kind of went their separate ways, and we all agreed, you know what, we're going to meet up at such and such a place, like wherever it was, like I think it was somewhere in the food court or whatever, and they said, hey, we're all going to meet up here in like half an hour, 45 minutes, or just whatever, right? Well, guys, I was a 10-year-old comic book collector, and I'm in the mall. Where do you think I went? If you guessed Walden Books, ding, 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 give the man a cigar. So made a beeline to uh, Walden Books, armed with some money that uh, Pop gave me. And, and, I, and I saw, hey, son of a bitch, they've got a, an issue of The Flash here. I'm buying it. You know, and... As I recall, actually, I picked up some other comics, too. And, you know, this isn't really, I suppose, the, the time for that. But, yeah, picked up some other stuff, too. And flipped through it and just at a glance, it's like I have no idea what the fuck is going on here. But, you know what, whatever. I bet when I read this comic, everything's going to make sense. So, anyway, brought, uh, you know, met up with uh, uh, the family after paying out. Met up with the family in the food court. And we all just kind of hung around for a little while. We didn't actually get food, as I recall. I mean, I think I was lusting after some Sabaros, but not much chance of that because we had beans that we were making at home. And speaking of which, now's probably time to get home. So let's go, fam. Time to hit the road. So anyway, off we went, right? We get back home and open the door and just get blasted in the face with this smell of not just beans, but like burned beans, right? Whatever my mom was cooking in the in uh, the kitchen, apparently she forgot to turn the heat back down before we left because, man, those beans got the shit burned out of them. Now, I wasn't planning to eat that shit in the first place, but I for damn sure was not eating it now. In fact, I don't think anybody was eating it now. And so, and it was just the, the stink of all of that. It was just overpowering. It was everywhere, literally everywhere inside the house, right? So I retreated upstairs thinking that, you know, it's probably going to be, it's probably going to be at least weaker in my room. And it wasn't, it was about as thick and potent in my room as it was anywhere else in the house. It was just terrible. Anyway, so I sat in my closet because that, I don't know why, but that was just where I liked, well, no, I say I don't know why. Actually, I know exactly why I sat in my closet. I had a pretty big closet, especially for a 10-year-old. You know, it was one of those big walk-in closets. And, you know, guys, I was only 10 years old. It's not like I had tons and tons of clothes or anything because, you know, when your kids are growing, you don't want to buy them like a full wardrobe because they're just going to grow out of it in two months. So it's just sort of a waste of money. So, I mean, I had tons of closet space in there. And so I kind of turned it into a little bit of a man cave. And, you know, I didn't really think of I don't really think that term existed back then, but that's basically, you know, what it was. And I had all of my action figures and all my toys and stuff in there. That's where I, I think that that's where I originally stored all of my comics. But then I, my collection grew to such a size that that this little cabinet, actually it wasn't a cabinet. It was basically just, well, fuck it. I'm just going to call it this little plastic cabinet, right? I didn't have long boxes or anything. So I just, I uh, kept my comics in this little cabinet and they just didn't fit in there anymore. You know, I just had too many. 
So I started using the lower drawer on my dresser to hold all of my comics because I didn't have any other storage space that was really up to the task. And so basically what I do is I just keep whatever comics that I was obs uh, obsessing over at that moment, keep those comics in my closet so I could just read them whenever I wanted. Uh, and along with like uh, trades and graphic novels and, you know, stuff like that, like collections and whatnot, to keep stuff like that in my closet too. And then along with all of my action figures and all this other stuff. And then I decided, you know what, fuck it. I think I need to have like a little bit of a stash in here. So I started uh, hiding, you know, think like snacks and candy, crackers and cookies and, you know, stuff like that. I had a little bit of a stash in in my closet, and guys, I mean, I'm not kidding. It was a little bit of a of a, of a man cave, right? And um, got a lot of fond memories of that closet, actually. Which it it you know what? It's it's weird. It sounds all pervy and stuff whenever you say it that way, but yeah, I mean, I, I you know, fuck it. I, I do have kind of fond memories of that closet. You know, I read a lot of good comics in that closet. I you know, I ate a lot of Twinkies in that closet. I had epic battles, you know, with all of my different action figures and stuff, you know, Marvel versus DC winner take all, you know, with my action figures and stuff, you know, a lot of that, you know, and, you know, it was just kind of a fun time. So anyway, <clears throat> that's where I was sitting when I actually read this comic cover to cover flash number 46. And it would be fair to say that there was a lot of, I can't say culture shock, but this was one of the first times that I really noticed that an adaptation of a comic book can sometimes be very different from the actual comic book. Now, that was something that I'd learned whenever I was getting into Batman and really becoming a big Batman fan. My introduction to Batman was <clears throat> the... Um, 1989 uh, Tim Burton movie and pretty much right away I went out and started reading you know Batman comics and the greatest Batman stories ever told and you know stuff like that and so it didn't take long for me to realize that Tim Burton's Batman was kind of his own beast in a lot of ways but for some reason it's like the the shock of that it just didn't hit me all that hard. You know, I just pretty much rolled with it. It's like, okay, well, the comics are different from the movies. Whatever. I can roll with that, you know? And did, you know? I, did, I honestly don't remember struggling really at all to get into Batman comics. But Flash number 46 was a major departure from all of that. And I could be wrong, but... I think it might have actually been manageable. You know? I think I might have been able to make all of this work if the star of this book had been Barry Allen. You know, it's I, I'm very much tempted to say I could have overlooked everything else had this character been Barry. But the fact that it was some guy called Wally, and just who the fuck is Wally, anyway? But the fact that it was some guy called Wally... It's like, I just didn't, I didn't get that, you know? And this is not to speak of the fact that this story is just, this is probably the worst Flash story for a first-time reader to pick up and try to get some kind of appreciation of the Flash or some kind of knowledge of the Flash. You know, who he is and what he does, you know? And this is just a shit issue to serve as an introduction for the flash, but it's like fucking, this is all I had, you know? And so I just kind of had to, to roll with it. But, you know, I mean, just, just from a technical standpoint, you know, well, actually, you know what, we'll come back to the first page in just a second, but you know, you get into the cover and it actually looks kind of good. In fact, you know, it kind of passes the squint test, the flash on the cover of the flash number 46 it kind of passes the squint test, you know? If you want this to look kind of like John Wesley's ship from the TV show, yeah, I could kind of see that. You know, he's got the right kind of jaw. He's a little bit taller and a little bit lankier than John Wesley's ship. But yeah, you know, it, it, it passes the sniff test. So right, right away, you know, this was kind of 
lulling me into a false sense of security. But you get onto uh, get onto the first page, and what you see is Vixen. She's kind of kneeling on the ground, and there's this kind of. It's basically supposed to be an illustration of, I guess, an outline of uh, a jackal surrounding her while she comforts and soothes the jackal that had been about to tear Detective What's-His-Name's head off, Detective Cleveland. <clears throat> and it's like, this just is not done very well, really at all. You know, the, the, the technology that uh, comic books were printed with back in the early 90s. Guys, these were not sophisticated comic book printing processes. And so because of that, you know, there would sometimes be artistic effects that the penciler is going for that just fucking fall flat. Because the technology that they're using to print these comics just isn't very good. And that's compounded by the fact that the that the the type of paper, this newsprint paper that they're that they're using to print these comics. Guys, it's just not cut out for fancy schmancy uh you know visual effects like this outline of a mother jackal surrounding uh Vixen on page 1. You know, I mean, newsprint just isn't really a very good choice for something like that. And so right away it's like at the first time I saw it it's like what the fuck is wrong with this page? I mean, did something go wrong when they were printing this comic cuz it looks like pieces of it are missing. Well, no, pieces of it are not missing, and this is just shitty printing. That's all. It's shitty printing on shitty paper. You know, and if this was just, you know, like a sort of a standard, more traditional and conventional type of comic that you would see in the Bronze Age, the the technology that was used to print comics would have been just fine. But comics had matured, and the technology and the format itself, the paper that, that was being used those things didn't mature with comics. And so this was one of the first times that I can, that I can remember um, where comics were more mature than their own format. And it, I mean, admittedly, I mean, guys, I've just defended the nineties as a decade, but yeah, this is one of those times when people are kind of within their rights to say, you know, you had these kind of sophisticated artistic effects that these pencilers were trying to do on the one hand, but then on the other hand, they're being printed on this shitty newsprint that it's not going to convey the artist's intent, you know? And part of me wants to say, well, you know, isn't that kind of the artist's fault? I mean, he knows how this comic is going to look in the end. So whatever. Anyway, I'm just saying that right from the start, you know, this was, a, it was hard to get my head around what exactly was happening on page one, even though there's narration to explain it to me. Right. So, you know, right there, you know, we've got, you know, we've got some problems going on, but you know, another thing is, you know, whenever you start getting into uh, uh, page two, this is panel three. Again, there's a, there's this sort of, I don't even know what to call it. Like, I guess this is a sort of chiaroscuro type of effect where we're supposed to see a, 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 a Siberian tigress in the background behind Vixen as she channels the power of a Siberian tigress. And again, it's, it's just the printing of this thing is so shitty that it's like the room that Vixen is standing in. It's like all of a sudden it has clouds in it, you know? And why does an indoor space have clouds? What the fuck am I looking at? I don't know, and I'm moving on, you know? And that was just kind of the attitude I had when I was a kid, you know? And my my opinion about that is, you know, look, it shouldn't be my responsibility to sit here studying this shit with an electron microscope in order to figure out what the fuck story you're trying to tell here or what kind of artistic effect you're shooting for or just whatever's going on, you know? That's not my fucking job. This is a visual medium. You know how these comics are going to be printed in the end. It's on you to make do with the tools that you ha that you have to work with here. But, you know, don't come to me, you know, blaming me like somehow this is my fault that I can't understand what's happening on the page because of this really shitty printing job, you know? So, anyway, um, I'm not trying to go on a rant here or anything. I'm just saying that this is one of those times when comics as a, f as a form were more mature than the technology 
that was used to create comics. You know, it is admittedly, it is a weird time in comics history. So anyway, moving right along, we get into page three. And again, this is just, I mean, obviously when I, when I picked this comic up, I was coming into the middle of the story partway through. And I was sensitive to the risks of doing that even when I was a kid. But it's like there was no exposition here to explain on page three just what the hell happened to the Flash. I mean, what's going on? How did he get to be all mangled and chewed up like this? Just what the fuck is going on here, you know? And if you don't already know the answer to that based on goings-on in Flash number 45 and having read Flash number 45, then you're kind of at a loss to follow really any of this, you know? And... You know, I, I'd glommed enough of uh, Vixen's little shtick here to figure out, oh, she's channeling the power of animals. So I guess, like, I don't know what you call that, like an empath, I suppose. But she can basically adopt the uh, characteristics and traits of animals and then use those abilities as her own. So she's kind of sort of like Animal Man, but not really, you know. So anyway... That part I kind of sort of understood when I was a kid. But, you know, from there we've got Vixen, and this is on page four. We've got Vixen, a character about which I knew practically nothing. And she's throwing down with Gorilla Grodd, a character about which I knew absolutely nothing. And, and it's like, again, what the hell's going on here? Well, I don't know and I don't care. You know, who is Vixen? Nothing says up to this point. Who is Grodd? Nothing says up to this point. You know? And anyway, so here again, it's just there's so little exposition to clue new readers into what's going on. And I'm here to tell you, I needed it back when I was a kid and I didn't get it. So I'm, maybe I'm still kind of bitter about that even now. But there is kind of a funny little moment that happens on page five when Vixen slams Grodd through a wall. She says, get up, ape. Get up so I can kill you again. You know, and I mean, that's just how just crazy bloodthirsty she's gone at this moment you know and what we realize is grod's powers affect her too but that actually doesn't come out till later in the story it does come out it's not that vixen's like bipolar or she's a psychopath or something like that it's not like that you know it's just that her abilities are very um i guess like mental in nature and so because of that Grodd's powers, which are mental in nature, affect her, and that's what drove her insane. So, that I get. So, anyway, moving right along, um, we start getting into uh, page six, and this is where the the wheels really started coming off the wagon for me, uh, back when I was a kid. And, basically, you've got Vixen, she's hunkering down on the ground, and she says, West, Wally, are you all right? And I just sat there thinking to myself, wait, wait, Wally? Who the fuck's Wally? I don't know. I thought the Flash was Barry Allen. What happened to that? Where's Barry? Because, again, all I knew was the Flash TV show and the character on that show is Barry. And so who the hell is Wally? And, hey, Wally's unmasked in front of this other guy. Is that good i mean that he seems like a stranger it's maybe not such a good thing that the flash doesn't have his mask what the fuck is going on you know and just all of that and the thing is like i say guys if you don't know the status quo of the flash what's going on with uh the flash and basically who wally is and where he fits in with the DC universe. Guys, there is literally nothing here in this entire comic that's going to explain that to you. Now, look, I understand that it's a lot to ask for a writer to, in effect, recapitulate a character's entire life all in one issue, because how is he going to tell a story that way if he has to do that every single issue? But, guys, the Flash TV show was a big hit. It was a very popular show. It's reasonable to assume because this was the 90s, it was reasonable to assume uh, some number of kids are going to come pick up a Flash comic because they, you know, they now have some kind of entree into the Flash. And they're, as I, I, I'd like to think I'm kind of living, breathing proof. Anybody who, who liked the Flash TV show and then 
picked up the Flash comic is going to have no idea what the fuck is going on. And they're not going to have like an easy access point into, I guess, the big picture, like the franchise of what this comic book is. So, I mean, it's bad enough that you don't really have an entry point into the story, which again, if you come into part three of, or part four or just whatever of a story, you know, hey, those are the breaks. I get that. But you need to at least tell us who these characters are, you know, and Mesner Loeb's just fucking doesn't do that. You know, at any point in this comic, he has, you know, basically, just to kind of give you an idea of what I mean, at the bottom of page six, Detective Cleveland thinks to himself, he says, Cleveland, my man, you just stepped way, way out of your league. This is literally the only time that this guy's name is mentioned anywhere in this entire issue. I checked. This is it. At no time... Does he, does anybody ever call him by his rank? Nobody calls him by name. Nobody calls him anything, you know? And I only know that he's a, that, that his, uh, that his rank is detective because I flipped through flash number 45 before starting this all up so I could have some decent notes, you know, and have all of these people's names because Literally, all you get here is his last name, Cleveland. And this is the only time it happens in this entire fucking issue, right? So anyway, and then here again on page six in the next to last panel, Vixen flies off with Flash uh, cradled in her arms. And I think what we're supposed to see is that there's a, like an eagle, the ghost image of an eagle drawn around her. And the thing is, it's partially blocked out by these gray streaks on the page that are supposed to be clouds or some such shit. I don't know. And, um, you know why there needed to be clouds exactly in that fucking part of the page. I don't know, but all it succeeds in doing is partially blocking out the Eagle. And so here again, it's like, why are there that, you know, the Eagle is drawn in these with this blue outline. And so I reading this for the first time, I'm like, what the fuck is going on with these blue streaks on the page? What the fuck is this? What am I looking at? And it honestly, it might have been more apparent if it wasn't for these gray fucking clouds that are on the page for no apparent goddamn reason. So, look, I don't know. I'm not trying to talk shit about Greg LaRocque, but, I mean, dude, he just dropped the fucking nachos. I swear to God, it's like on every single page of this issue, he's just fucking things up. So, anyway, no offense to Greg LaRocque if you're listening to this. I'm sure you put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, but, dude, seriously, what the fuck? Anyway, moving right along. We finally start getting not even exposition. This is basically an internal monologue with a, a gorilla grod. And we get a little bit of a, I guess a little bit of a taste for his personality, his ideas, and his worldview. And it's basically probably the most characterization. Like if you walk into this comic knowing nothing about anything like I did, this is probably the most characterization that you get anywhere to be found in this entire issue. And so I appreciated that as a kid because I kind of want to know, who is Gorilla Grodd? You know, what's his shtick? What does he want? You know, what's he trying to accomplish here? And we get it all laid out. You know, it's right here. He's building a machine of some kind. He's obviously assembled an army of animals over whom he has some amount of control. And he's basically, for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of an animal supremacist. And it pretty well tells you everything that you need to know in order to understand Grodd's motivations throughout this, spe uh, specifically throughout this issue, but I would say in general throughout this storyline that that involves Gorilla Grodd, right? So that part works okay. And then when you start getting into, you know, page eight and then going forward, we get a little bit of Vixen's backstory and, you know, goings on with the Suicide Squad. And I knew of the Suicide Squad. I mean, I was by no means uh, like a major fan of them, but I had a couple of their comics and I really, I really did enjoy them. I just liked the shtick of the Suicide Squad, but I just did not remember seeing Vixen around all that much. And honestly, it's still really done. I need to, I guess, dig those, those Suicide Squad comics out of mothballs or something because I've just completely blanked her out for some reason. So anyway... Like I say, I mean, you know, we get a little bit of characterization, but it's just, for the most part, if you don't already know who these characters are and what makes them tick, 
there's not very much in this issue that's going to give the answers to you. But I, I will say one thing. On page nine, you know, you, you've got Vixen at the top of the page. She's talking about, she's basically talking about her history with the Suicide Squad. And we see a couple of members, one of whom obviously is going to be Batman. And this is the only time I can think of when Greg LaRock ever drew Batman in a DC comic book. And I got to tell you, I might be kind of interested, actually, in uh, seeing what Greg LaRock could do with an actual Batman comic, because it actually looks pretty cool. I mean, you only get this one little, it's practically a sketch for all the detail that's there, but I would kind of want to see a little bit more of that, you know? I don't know if this is, you know, prescient or what, but Greg LaRock sort of drew Batman to, I thought even at the time, like even when I was a kid, you know, long before the advent of Batman Forever, I thought, you know, huh, Batman here it looks kind of, sort of, like Val Kilmer. So, hmm. Anyway. <sighs> Moving right along, we get this kind of little, this neat little effect on uh, page 10 when um, when uh, Grodd fires up the Kirby machine of Doom. We get this weird-looking kind of Kirby crackle-looking effect at the bottom of page 10. And I didn't really know all that much about you know, uh, Jack Kirby or, you know, his, I guess his contributions to comics. But I understood, you know, even then that this kind of crackle effect, this sort of glow effect that we're seeing at the bottom of, of uh, page 10, this is sort of a trope in comics. And I, I recognized it as a trope. I just didn't recognize it as sort of a, I guess a Jack Kirby kind of tribute, but usually whenever you see it, that's normally the way that it's intended. So so, hmm. Anyway, moving right along, you know, we get into page 11, and this is a little bit of animal cruelty in comics. And I remember seeing stuff like this in other comics, a good example being uh, Detective Comics number, I want to say it was Detective Comics number 612, where uh, Catman basically tries to feed Batman to this Siberian-looking tiger. A white tiger, anyway. I don't know if that makes it a Siberian tiger, but fuck it, it's a white tiger. Uh, just a sec. I'm going to get a drink off my Coke here. <clears throat> Good stuff. Anyway, so in that issue of uh, Detective Comics, these, basically these opportunists, I, for lack of a better way of putting it, were basically kidnapping, uh, you know, people's uh, house cats and they were also kidnapping stray cats. Basically, they had a scam going where they would turn them over to something like the SPCA or something like that in exchange for money. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why the SPCA doesn't give money for that sort of thing anymore. And, you know, to me, I mean, that's just kind of cruel. But for as cruel as that is, it's that much worse what we're seeing right here on page 11 where these people tie some firecrackers to a cat's tail. And they're basically getting ready to to set the firecrackers off when this giant fucking tiger or a leopard or whatever the hell this thing is jumps out of nowhere and just claws the shit out of everybody. And it's a little bit of poetic justice. And obviously the cat runs away unharmed. And I don't know. I mean, it's, I don't like even the suggestion of animal cruelty in uh, comics I just don't like animal cruelty in general. I mean, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to grandstand or anything like that because, you know, I seriously doubt that anybody's going to send me an email saying, but Magnus, but Magnus, I love animal cruelty. Nobody's going to say that, right? So I'm not trying to grandstand or anything like that, but it's just, you know, I have just, I guess, such contempt for people who are cruel to animals, you know, because these are creatures that, look, they've been domesticated. You know, I'm not exactly suggesting that you go out there and abuse a bear, like a big grizzly bear or something like that. But you know what? A grizzly bear is a wild animal. You know, if a grizzly bear doesn't like the way that you're treating him, he will fuck you up. He can defend himself, you know. But pets, you know, they've been domesticated for thousands of years now. And so, yeah, you know, I mean, maybe some of them can put up a fight, but for the most part... You know, they've been bred, trained, and conditioned to regard humans on some level as friends and allies, caretakers, you know, and it's a tremendous betrayal of nature. 
notwithstanding the fact that we're talking about a living being here, and this living being, it, it has a body. This body has nerves. If you hurt this being's body, its nerves will be in pain. So it's like right there. You don't. I don't even really need to go beyond that. You don't need to inflict harm on innocent animals for no reason. But the other thing is, it, like I say, it's just at this point, it's a betrayal because... You know, we've taken, by domesticating them, uh, d domesticating these animals, we've basically, in effect, as a human race, we've basically taken, we've, we've taken responsibility for the evolutionary development of these animals, you know? Like Lucy, uh, Lucy the puppy, she's the unofficial mascot of Trinus Magnus Punch's reality. And she, she's basically been here for every single episode of this show that I've ever recorded. And... You know, if I use a certain tone of voice to her, she's going to know that I'm inviting her over. She can, uh, you know, just trot on over to me, hop up in my lap, and she's going to get hugs, and she's going to get petted, and she's probably going to get a treat or something like that. And she knows that. And so for me to betray her trust by harming her in some level, I mean, it's just wrong, you know? I mean, it's morally wrong to hurt living creatures— so I'm not trying to underplay that, but I'm just saying that, you know, we, as a human race, we domesticated these animals. They trust us. They depend on us now, you know, uh, to be caretakers, to, to, to feed them and do things like that. And whenever you do things like, I don't know, tie fucking firecrackers to their tails, you know, you're basically betraying the, the compact that exists between man and pet. And... That's just fucking wrong. So it's morally wrong to hurt them at all. But number two, in hurting them, it's also, I, I don't know, it's like naturally wrong or scientifically wrong, evolutionarily wrong. It's, it's wrong in a different direction, in a, in a different way now to harm them because of the fact that you're not just inflicting pain, which is bad enough, you're betraying trust which I think is even worse, you know? So all around, I mean, nobody really gets too mad about it when uh, animal abusers get what's coming to them in uh, fiction. And indeed, that's what's happening here. So anyway, like I say, I'm not trying to grandstand or anything because I, I'm pretty sure you all agree with me. Or if you don't, you probably know better than to let me know that you disagree with me. I'm just saying that, you know, things like this, it's always kind of funny to see it in comics or movies or whatever because... Invariably, you know that the uh, the animal's going to get away, so that the bigger animal can wreck shop on the animal abusers. So, and that's more or less what we're seeing here. So, anyway, moving right along, uh, we're you know getting into uh, this is basically pages uh, twelve, thirteen, and through there. We're basically seeing, I, and I guess in addition to page eleven, also pages twelve and thirteen. Basically, the animals of Keystone City are on the attack, you know, and that's what's going on here. And they're basically fucking everything up, fucking everybody up. They're basically causing all sorts of chaos, mayhem, and carnage. And that is the purpose of, of Grodd's uh, Kirby Machine of Doom. He's basically taking mental control of Keystone City's animals and pets and all that kind of stuff and basically using them to wreck shop on everything and so it's up to you know the good guys just trying to figure out well how exactly are we supposed to win when this is what Grodd is trying to do and I will give Messner Loeb's credit for I don't know, like, I guess trying to come up with a kind of original way of threatening the city. Because when you think about it, turning every single animal in inside of a major metropolitan area against the public, yeah, a lot of people are going to die that way, you know? And it's, I don't know, I, I, I kind of like that as a concept. And it stands to reason that of all characters, Gorilla Grodd, of course he's going to do something like that, you know? So, anyway, moving right along, 
we get this moment where I guess Vixen falls under uh, Grodd's sway here. She goes on the attack and basically slices the shit out of Piper's chest on page 18. Flash dashes him off to safety. Then he comes back and the fight's on between him and Vixen. And like, guys, let's face it. I mean, first off, the Flash really wasn't fighting to win against Vixen. He was basically trying to get her to come back to her senses. You know, he wasn't fighting to win. He was basically fighting to subdue her. Whereas she was basically moving in for the kill. And so, of course, she was going to win. So I kind of like that because, you know, it it, it kind of says something that, you know, even when I was a kid and I was reading this, it said a lot to me that, you know, Flash didn't just zoom in, attack her, punch her a thousand times in five seconds and then just lay her out that way. He tried to reason with her. You know, he tried to wrestle her uh, to the ground and say, you know, get a hold of yourself, you know. Get back to your senses. I don't know what's come over you, but you need to just snap out of it. And then she barely even says anything to him at all. She just basically kicks his ass. And then that's pretty much that. And then, you know, Grodd pimps into the scene. And then it comes it comes out. And this is on page 20. It comes out, you know, when Grodd says, My force of mind brought you here just as it channels your power as I please. You are mine. Blah, 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 blah. And so... On it goes from there. And then after that, you know, the the issue, it, it's like it just doesn't even really, like, conclude. It's like it just sort of ends, you know? You've got this stray dog that we saw really more of in Flash 40, number 45. Well, his internal monologue was pretty minimalistic, but he did have one. Now he has a little bit more fully formed thoughts and ideas and all of that and you know he's kind of fucking pissed off and then here comes Rex the Wonder Dog saying I've come to help you little brother my name is Rex and then it just says continued and it's like what the fuck man and like I say this is just not a good access point for new readers and it just seems kind of to me sort of short-sighted that it never occurred to anybody that you know what hey Maybe we need to make these these next several issues of The Flash, make them just kind of new reader friendly. Because this TV show is starting up and it's logical to think there's going to be some kind of spillover effect. But it's like, that just didn't fucking cross anybody's mind and I don't get that. Just a sec, another sip off my Coke here. Hmm. Anyway, I just, I don't get that. You know, I mean, I like the idea of Grodd as a villain. I think he's a... Even today, I, I think Grodd is a... That's just a really cool, really kind of unique idea for a villain. But... I don't know. It's just... I want to like this... I wanted to like this story when I was a kid. But it's like everything... Every single page of this comic is... It's like it. It's like this entire issue is just conspiring to give me reasons not to like it. So, anyway, overall, you know this this issue isn't too bad. Whenever you read it in context and you know just what's going on with the story, with the characters, and all that. But if you just come to this thing totally new, totally fresh, I don't think you're gonna enjoy this comic very much. So, listener discretion is advised, I guess. So, anyway, so I think that's pretty much the end of Flash number 46. Now, as it goes for next week, I'm going to be talking about Punisher War Journal number 26. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week.
everybody, Magnus here. At Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But mostly it's comics. And starting in February 2018, I'm launching a mega series that's all about Batman comics. And right now, you're probably saying, but Magnus, but Magnus, does this have anything to do with that new Batman movie that may or may not be coming soon? Why, yes. Yes, it does. I plan to talk about a crapload of Batman comics, and I want you riding along in the Batmobile with me. This is the Caped Crusades, a 24-part mega-series all about Batman comics that have meant a lot to me for a lot of years now. And as I work through all of that, I'll also talk about what I personally consider to be Batman's series finale. All that and more is part of the Caped Crusades, a 24-part Trennis Magnus Punches Reality mega series. Be there in February 2018. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality can be found at twotruefreaks.com as well as iTunes. Is your hand okay? No, it's broken, but my heart is mended knowing that we got Rico into a safer home. Indeed. I can't believe that he was able to survive suicide slums all by himself. Oracle, let's make sure he has the best birthday ever. Ashford, you want to go in with us on a gift? I don't do birthdays. What do you mean you don't do birthdays? I'm tired of birthdays already. How can you be tired of birthdays? Every time I look up, someone is having a birthday, Black Canary. And they just can't have one birthday. It's always, my birthday is on Tuesday, but the party is on Saturday, but my parents are coming in on Sunday, so we're having the dinner on Friday. By the end of the week, according to the logic of birthdays, the person has aged five years. Dude, birthdays gotta stop. If the birthday stopped, that means the person is dead. Hmm, I think that's existential. Subscribe to Feathers and Foes on iTunes. Follow Feathers and Foes on Twitter at Feathers and Foes and email at the Feathers and Foes website. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T R. E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O. T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. 
Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>